0: You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Start!
1: You can call me Bruce.
2: Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce!
1: Coming to you from an undisclosed location...
2: There comes a time, every little bit, when you do listener engagement on a podcast, where you find yourself a little backlogged, and you have to make sure you get caught up. Today is one of those days. It's going to be a take-only podcast, just take after take after take after take, because it's been a little bit since I've had an opportunity to do some takes. And because of that, I've got a couple that have been sitting in my email since May. And I kind of need to talk about them. So I figure I'll talk about them live on this show. And those of you who are joining me live on Locker Room can also join in by hitting the request to speak button at the bottom of your application and get in line. And when I'm done with these people's takes, I will grab them verbally and grab them from the comments and we will do this thing. As a reminder, you can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce exclusive. You can email me, I am Bruce Almighty at yahoo.com. That is the preferred way to send me your takes. I am Bruce Almighty at yahoo.com. Or you can hop on live with me Thursday nights at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Right now it's Eastern Daylight Time, but historically Eastern Standard Time for the other part of the year. So, Let's dive into it. Patrick says to me, Bruce, so the recent Tyler Dunn article inspired me to dial up the Wayback Machine and take a look at some old videos and stats from the Johnson versus Flutie era, including a full rewatch of the Music City Miracle game. So here are my almighty takes. Number one, although it's unlikely either guy was a true franchise quarterback, the Bills blew it by not committing to Rob Johnson and trying to develop him. Here's my reasoning. Flutie was extremely limited as a passer and really held the team back in 98 and 99. He completed only 50%, 57% of his passes in 98 and 55% in 99. Ouch. He had a weak arm and significantly limited what the offense could do without some pretty good weapons. Moulds, Antoine Smith, Peerless Price. We all got caught up in the narrative Flutie Flakes. And the Bills certainly did win when he played. They were 21-9 and in games he started. But as we all know, wins are not a quarterback stat. The Bills wasted two great years of defense and missed a chance at some late 90s Super Bowl runs because they were emotional rather than analytical about the quarterback position. The Bills should have realized that Flutie was never going to be the long-term answer. And they should have committed to developing Rob who had a great arm and lots of talent, but was never really given a chance to settle in and grow as a leader or a player. The second thing, Wade was right to start Rob Johnson in the Titans game. The Bills defense was world-class that year. Flutie was holding us back. 55% completion percentage, 19 touchdowns and 16 interceptions. Johnson actually played pretty well in the playoff game. The offensive line was decimated by injury and most of the sacks were not his fault. Titans guys just blew by their blockers. When Johnson leaves the field that day, the Bills are winning. And but for a totally wacky special teams play, we're still singing the ballad of shoeless Rob Johnson to this day. As always, thanks for the extra effort and great content, Pat. Okay, so we have two Rob Johnson takes here. The first one is the Bills blew it by not committing to Rob Johnson. I would agree with this. Now, I will say that we need to give the Bills a little bit of grace in the late 90s. Because Flutie was a phenomenon. Do you guys remember Tebow Mania with the Broncos? The Broncos literally had to trade him to get him out to get rid of Tebow Mania. Because we all knew that Tebow wasn't the long-term answer, but the team kept winning. And the fans loved it. And it was exciting. And Tebow, you can't see this, but I'm doing air quotes, Tebow... Won a playoff game, because wins aren't a quarterback snap, but everyone thinks they are. And because of that Tebow mania, the fan base was rabid about Tebow. From the second he walked in, that's just the way it was. It was magic. And it was the same way with Doug Flutie. So when things like that come up, and you have a phenomenon, the organization's put in a real tough spot. Because the overwhelming public opinion was behind Doug Flutie, hence Flutie Flakes. There weren't any, you know, Johnson O's back then. No Robbie O's, nothing like that. We had some T O's later on, but it was a phenomenon. It was was a, a cult of personality with Doug Flutie. There are some people who still to this day look back at the Doug Flutie scenario like he was literally magic. And that's just the way it was. And I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, I think that uh, Jack brings up a really good point here in the comments. And that's because the line was in shambles. It actually made more sense to have Flutie over Johnson. I get that. I understand that. You know, we all talk about Johnson holding the ball too long. But I think we look at Johnson. I don't think Johnson really necessarily held the ball too long. I think late stage Drew Bledsoe is an example of holding the ball too long. But what you had is... You had a a person who was willing to break the pocket early and make a play. So you had all of the out-of-pocket, off-structure, off-schedule sort of playmaking ability that you get currently from Josh Allen with Doug Flutie, but you didn't get any of the in-pocket ability. And so because of that, you created this magical kind of concept, but it was never going to hold up in the long term. So I recognize that the Bills probably should have committed to Rom Johnson. But I also recognize they were put in a really bad position. So I think this is a a perfectly reasonable take, quite frankly. The second one is, Wade was right to start Rob Johnson in the Titans game. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. You all may remember my previous co-host, Nick, was an unbelievable Doug Flutie fan. Huge Doug Flutie fan. He would crucify me for this take. But I'm fine with it. I am absolutely fine with it. That was a team who was winning, as you mentioned... By not because of Doug Flutie. They weren't winning because of Doug Flutie. Doug Flutie was kind of holding them back a little bit. And they would make a spectacular play at the end. And we'd all talk about Flutie magic. But if he would have thrown a touchdown or two earlier in the game, he wouldn't have needed the magic. And this is one of the reasons why I was so indoctrinated into the concept that wins aren't a quarterback stat. Because this was a big part of my Bills fandom, for sure, because it was the last real success I saw before the drought. So I I don't think either of these takes are bad, Pat. I think both of them are completely reasonable. So Judge Passion says, two years ago, you did a podcast dissecting McDermott coaching and life philosophy. I just listened to it again and thought you should do a new podcast, the McDermott Masterclass 2.0. I'd love to hear your updated thoughts on the topics that you discussed previously, plus any new topics that have emerged since July of 2019. So this is the way this works, Patch. I went back after I first read this email, and I listened to the McDermott Masterclass, which was a podcast that I did on the Nick and Nolan show with my old uh, my old co-host Nick a couple years ago when we were trying to talk about, here's what McDermott is. Here's what he believes in. And I'll level with you. I really love that pod. I went back and listened to it recently and it totally holds up and a lot of that stuff is valuable. Now I'm just not entirely sure I can add a lot to it. I'm not sure that there's a new version of McDermott because one of the things that we talked about being a McDermott trait was the ability to adapt. And so he has adapted. So, but that's not a new trait. He's a new version of McDermott more aggressive version, more animated inclined because that's always been part of who he is. So if I find a way, or if I come up with a thing, uh, an outline, where I can really, really give good content, I will do it. Patch, I will absolutely do that. If I can't, I'm, I'll try and fit it in as like a subtopic somewhere else, because I'm just not sure that McDermott has a lot of traits that we haven't already talked about. I don't want to just, redo it again. But I imagine that podcast will probably come up again at some point. Kevin says, hello, Bruce. I hope you had a good week off from podcasting. I did. I did. There have been a lot of people who have reached out and have checked in on me because I actually, I never took a week off. And two weeks ago, I actually took a week off. Um, Work was crazy. Life was crazy. And I just just couldn't do it that week. Um, I was at my breaking point, as they say. And something has to go. And it certainly wasn't going to be my time with my wife. It certainly wasn't going to be other things that are higher priority than this. I have a very, very clear, I have a very clear delineation of my life of what is important to me. And so when stressed, I go to the bottom of the priority list and that's the thing that comes off first. And so I love to do what I do here, but this is a very small part of the overall Bruce life. So uh, I've been very fortunate to have people like Anthony Marino and Matt Warren in my life who were able to cover for me, and um, they have been—they have been really. My voice just cracked. I'm not—I'm not actually getting emotional. I think my just voice just cracked for a different reason. But going through puberty, Bruce is puberty Bruce. Uh, but I have people like that in my life who have shown me grace and have made sure that they have adjusted when things like that have popped up for me, and I'm just really grateful. So thank you for checking in on me, Kevin. Your last episode, episode with Nate Geary, which is called the Worry Algorithm, and the discussion about CB2 got me thinking about roster depth blind spots that coaches may have and how they try to correct them, assuming they correct them at all. In that episode, you were talking about how Sean McDermott has a habit of running his defense with one lockdown cornerback and one serviceable cornerback and doesn't seem to want to deviate from that model. I've had thoughts like this for several years now. Because it seems like the Bean McDermott team hyper-focuses on certain specific positions while leaving other positions a little thin. They approach some positions with great care and then just throw everything at the wall to see what sticks for other positions. I think the best examples are all of the defensive line signings, but the roster is still weak at one tuck. A lack of linebacker depth, which has been evident for years, finally hurt the Bills when Milano went down last season as well. And let's not forget the wide receivers Tyrod Taylor and rookie Josh Allen were working with before Cole Beasley, John Brown, and Stephon Diggs came to town. I was wondering if you would be able to speak on why Sean McDermott approaches different positions the way he does and why he may not be comfortable trying something new. Or am I just underestimating the difficulties in building a competitive roster in the NFL? Thanks again for everything you do. I've learned so much about football since I started listening to your podcast, Kevin. Kevin, thank you so much. For, uh, for the kind words and for, and for your take. I think that every regime has positions they prioritize based on their scheme. I think that if you looked at the Andy Reid, if you looked at the Andy Reed Eagles, for example, they were always heavily invested in the offensive line. And a lot of times their skill position suffered because of that. That's a great example. Uh, Mike Zimmer is a huge cornerback guy. Everybody knows that. Maybe that's why I like them so much. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, certain franchises devalue running backs. It's just kind of the way that they approach positional prioritization. And for them, it's not so much that they don't think. It's not so much they don't think having a good player there is important. It's that they recognize you cannot have a roster with great players at every position. You just can't do it. Uh, one of the things that Aaron Quinn. Uh, co-host of the cover one Buffalo podcast uh, found him find him on Twitter at Aaron Quinn 716 who's a friend of mine one of the things that he always talks about is that listen just, there's no roster in the world that doesn't have weak spots it just doesn't exist now in our heads we want to finesse a roster so that there's no weak points I do the same thing I'm in a dynasty league with a bunch of other bills content creators and bills media people and I'm always looking over my roster going okay I really need a fifth running back. And I'm like freaking out about a fifth running back. I'm like, listen, you're not going to have a perfect roster from top to bottom. It's just not going to happen. You can't do it. But it's even, even, even easier to do in fantasy than it is in real life football. You just can't do it. You have a salary cap, you have limited resources, and you have time. And as people are falling off contracts, you have to replace them. And your order of prioritization with those things comes along with the positional prioritization that you put. And that's just the way it happens. So I don't think you are necessarily underestimating the difficulties in building a competitive roster in the NFL. I don't think that Sean McDermott would say, we don't need a good player at cornerback two. I think really what it boils down to is he's seen his scheme work a lot with a get-by guy at cornerback two. Just a, a decent guy. And I think we can agree Levi Wallace is decent at being a zone coverage corner. I don't think anybody would tell you that Levi Wallace is not a serviceable zone coverage corner. I would tell you that too. My problem with Levi Wallace is that I need something. I don't need something. Let me rephrase that. I want something better so you can have something else happening on the back end. I want to grease the wheels of defensive flexibility by having a better athlete there. So... I don't think anybody would say that Levi Wallace is a bad player, and I don't think anybody would look at Sean McDermott and say he's okay with a bad player. No one's okay with a bad player. It's just a matter of prioritization. He looks at Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison and sees their contracts falling off and says, that's more important to me, getting youth in depth at those positions, that's more important to me than trying to upgrade from Levi Wallace. Now, part of that is because I've established with discussion points I've made previously that I believe Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean are team pass rush over team coverage. So that then bleeds into positional prioritization. Positional prioritization is something that comes out of philosophy. And if your philosophy is pass rush over coverage, then it's probably going to make sense that you would be defensive line over CB2. Makes sense. So, I don't think you're necessarily underestimating it. I just think that he doesn't view it as a prior, a pressing need because he's seen it work without it for so long. So, that's my stance on roster depth and blind spots. I, I don't think it's necessarily a blind spot for him. I think he's very aware of it. I just don't think he views it as a problem. I don't think he views it. He says, well, listen, this was a top, a top defense for two years in a row. And one of the things that coincided with a backslide was an increase in blitz percentage. Let's talk about that for a second. The Bills' blitz percentage in 2020 was notably higher than it was in 18 and 19. And those two things happened simultaneously. Blitz percentage went up, defensive effectiveness went down. I don't think the defensive effectiveness went down because the blitz went up. I think the defensive effectiveness went down because the blitz was necessary to go up. You weren't getting the pressure with front four the way you wanted to. Therefore, you needed to blitz more. And the same thing that caused you to need to blitz more, which is you weren't getting pressure with front four, also caused regression for the defense. They originated the same point. So for them, they probably look at that and go, well, if we can get better pressure with the front four, we can blitz less often the way we did in 18 and 19, which means you'll have a better defense. We are planning on doing a pot at some point on the concept of defensive regression and revisiting the discussion we had last year about whether or not the bills will regress because in 18 and 19, the popular terminology for the Buffalo bills, especially after the 2019 season was they're the Jacksonville Jaguars circa 2017 with Blake Bortles and that great defense, or they're the Chicago bears of 2018 with Mitch Trubisky. If you remember correctly, I did an entire pod series talking about why the defense was not the same as those defenses and Josh Allen wasn't the same as Blake Bortles and Josh Allen wasn't the same as Mitch Trubisky. The narrative was so strong, I had to spend almost a month of off-season pod work to combat it, to give you, Bill's Mafia, the ammunition necessary to be able to combat that with your friends. That's a big part of what this pod is about. Giving you things that you can then talk about with your friends when you're getting into arguments with your Cowboys buddies or your Dolphins buddies. Give you logical arguments to walk through as to why something is true or why something is false. Scotty says it's time to bless Bruce with some gems for the content. Double tap my icon if you're here on Locker Room. Heck yeah, baby. I love gems. I still don't entirely know what you do with them, but you know what? I'll take them. I will sign up for those gems, so I appreciate it. As a related note, the gem icon on Locker Room looks like the old gem icon from the old Nintendo DuckTales game. I don't know if any of you guys ever played the NES DuckTales game, but I loved that game to death. And every time I see this gem icon, I think... Of that particular gem icon that was a collectible in that game. Just weird off-the-cuff sort of randomness. Danny in the comments says, that game was my whole childhood. Let's let's go. Let's go, Danny. The moon theme, the moon theme from the moon level in that DuckTales game, I have that saved on YouTube for like six different versions because I love that song so much. I will occasionally get that song stuck in my head, and I haven't played that game in 25 years or 30 years. I don't, it's been a long time since I played that game. So yes, I am all about the DuckTales NES game. That was just awesome. Yes, they remastered it. I know they remastered for the PS3. They tell tell me in the comments that they remastered it. They remastered it. I had it for the PS3, but I don't have a PS3 anymore because I sold all my stuff not too long ago with that, all that stuff. I got rid of my PS3. I still have some vintage systems, but I really need to find the original DuckTales game. I don't have an NES, though. I need to get an NES. Okay, we we have gone down this road for far too long. I have diverted far too long. So all that to say that, I don't even remember where I was going with this. Okay, so Mitch Trubisky, Blake Bortles, Josh Allen, all that stuff. So we're at some point going to talk about the defensive regression that happened a little bit, but it didn't happen to the same level it happened with the Bears and the Jaguars. And we're going to talk about some of the reasons why I discussed that the Bills were probably not due to that level of defensive regression, we're going to revisit that concept, see how accurate I was. Because as we all know, if it's time to take the L, we got to take the L and I'm good with it. So let's go on. Nick has a hot take for me. Bruce, I'm a little worried that McDermott suffers from what I call Andy Reid syndrome. Let me explain. When Andy was in Philly, he believed so much in coaching, he thought that scheme He could scheme points and didn't need elite receivers. Starting receivers throughout his time were limited to talents such as Tom Pinkston, James Thrash, Freddie Mitchell, the people's champ, baby. His only Super Bowl appearance was when he added T.O. He finally relented by adding higher end receivers such as Deshaun Jackson and Jeremy Macklin. But overall, he mostly tried to out scheme opponents and put minimal resources into the receiver core. This is what worries me about McDermott and CB2. I believe he feels scheme can adequately protect the position to the point where not only do they not prioritize it, they actually deprioritize adding a CB2 due to their belief in the scheme. After Reed went to Kansas City, he added elite talent, and obviously aided by Mahomes, the success has followed. I know how often you speak of your desire for a CB2 with an athletic profile that adds more versatility in the coverage scheme, but do you think that Bean McDermott simply do not think it's a wise use of resources when they believe so much in their scheme? Wow, almost like you read my mind, Nick. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit earlier with Andy Reid and Philadelphia. Now, I think it's important to note that Eagles fans at that time really thought that Todd Pinkston, James Thrash, Freddie Mitchell, like they really thought that those players were going to break out. You know, Thomas Pinkston was a was a good athlete. James Thrash had good years in, in Washington. You know, a lot of people thought pretty highly of Freddie Mitchell. So. I think that there's a an argument there to be made. I really do. I think that there's definitely an argument there to be made. But if you look at like, let's go to like the 2005, the 2005 Philadelphia Eagles, shall we? Let's just do that. Let's go to the 2005 Philadelphia Eagles. And we will look up kind of the way that their passing got spread around, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. We're gonna look at the starters and roster. We're gonna look at the statistics. We're gonna—I'm going to Pro Football Reference right now, and we're gonna—we're gonna do it. So, there we go. The offensive starters were Reggie Brown and Greg Lewis at wide receiver, and they both had 567 yards or 561 yards, 571 yards. Those are not inspiring starters. By any means. In 2005. In 2006, it was Reggie Brown and Dante Stallworth. 800, 700-yard guys. Didn't have a 1,000-yard receiver. Then in 2007, it was Reggie Brown and Kevin Curtis. Now, Kevin Curtis that year was a 1,000-yard receiver. But they were trying. Like, they were bringing in new people to try and pull up. I mean, Reggie Brown was a second-round pick. He was 35th overall. It wasn't like they weren't trying to replace it. They just didn't pan out. You know what I mean? Like They brought in Dante Stallworth, who was originally a first-round pick of the uh, the Saints. But they, they made efforts to be able to do it. I think Todd Pinkston, we're going to look this up real fast, but I think Todd Pinkston was a second-round pick, too. Yes, he was. Todd Pinkston was a second-round pick at 35th overall. So they spent the 35th overall pick, 36th overall pick on receivers. They were trying to do it. So I think when we look back at this, when we look back at this, we look back at a scenario where the Eagles invested resources just didn't pan out. And so then they decided to make the big swing because there was a, there was a discussion with the Eagles, the way that there's a discussion about the Patriots. So that was a narrative that was part of the fan base was can the Eagles draft wide receivers. We're talking about that now with the Patriots, but that was a, a, that was a narrative with the Eagles. It was a scenario where the the fan base was kind of on Andy Reid about throwing the ball all the time and not throwing enough, not running enough with, with Westbrook. That was a big part of the narrative. And they said, well, hold on. Now, if you're going to throw the ball all the time, why don't you get better receivers? Why can't we draft receivers? Freddie Mitchell was a first-round pick, 25th overall. So this is the 25th overall pick the 35th overall pick, and the 36th overall pick trying to find receivers. So you could make an argument they should have used their first-round pick more often, but these are high seconds and low firsts that they're trying on wide receivers. It wasn't like they didn't try. So I think it's important. The difference between the Andy Reid scenario and the the Sean McDermott scenario is resources. Sean McDermott has spent a one-year, $6 million contract on Josh Norman, he spent a one-year, handful of million-dollar contract on Kevin Johnson. These are the kind of investments he's made. Seventh-round pick and a six-round pick. Seventh-round pick, Dane Jackson, a six-round pick, Rashad Wild Goose, you know, brought in Vontae Davis for a couple million off the street. Like He hasn't really made significant investments in corner the way that the Eagles tried to with the wide receiver position. So I do think it's a little bit different. I think it's important that we point that out. I think that there is more of a case of the scheme, the scheme confidence protecting that position and deprioritizing that position with McDermott than there is with Reed. So I actually think McDermott, I think the point has has a valid, there's a valid you know stance to the point for sure. But I think that it's probably even more so true with McDermott than it is with Reed. So that's my that's my opinion. We are going to go to the comments right now. And we're going to go to the speaker request. Brian is here. Here, the Cowboys fan. The Cowboys fan is here with me live. Brian, how you doing, dude? Pretty good, man. First time listening to you, man. I got to say I'm a fan already. Dude, I'm awesome. I'm thrilled. That's awesome. That's fantastic. You know what? I don't know how you popped in. We were talking before I went live that you're a Cowboys fan and you just kind of stumbled in here. Hmm. So, uh, given the fact that this is a pretty open forum and the fact that you can have a take about anything, this doesn't even have to be a take about the Bills. So, hit me with a take. It could be football, it could be life, it could be food. Hit me with a take, and it doesn't obviously, it doesn't even have to be about the Bills because you're not a Bills guy. Let's hear it.
3: Okay. Uh, this one's probably a little bit unpopular, but here's what I'd like to see. Okay, I feel like the NFL is going to slowly start drifting towards an 18, 19 game sort of season. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what I'd really yeah. like to see <clears throat> is a is a hard cap on individual games by players. So, say the NFL extends it to a 19 game season, they should put a cap on players to only play 16 games per season. So every team would have to have a, th- a quarterback who starts three games a year. They'd have to have a running back that starts three games. They'd have to have a receiving core. It'd be uh, mostly guys coming up from the practice squad, but it would be uh, – honestly, it'd make, it'd make fantasy football more interesting. And uh, it would be, it'd be a lot – it would be – I don't know. I don't know. I'll leave it at that. I want to hear what you guys think about that. Okay.
2: Brian, I appreciate that, man. Okay, so uh, first off, I love it. I, I love the out-of-the-box thinking. I absolutely love it. I think that one of the things that I hate – about the nfl expanding the games is i don't think it's good for the product because you already struggle at the end of the year with the nfl game being a, a game of attrition i think it's really ironic that we all just generally accept the fact that football is a game of attrition especially as you get close to the playoffs there is a correlation between later bye weeks and teams who make the super bowl that is a correlation that happens because it's a game of attrition so we all generally understand that it's a game of attrition, okay? But then at the same time, we go, let's add more games. That makes no sense to me. So I'm completely out on more games. But if they keep doing it, I would absolutely love to see a second bye week. And if they keep doing it, I wouldn't mind at all seeing a hard cap. If the NFLPA says, you know what, we've had enough. You can have your 18th game, but every player's gonna get capped. It'll be... They call it load management in the NBA. So we could build that into the CBA where it's enforced and contractual load management. And I would have absolutely no problem with that at all. I would be completely on board with that. So I think that's I think that's a great take. I do think that the NFL would fight like tooth and nail. And I think that one of the things that fans would hate is that there would have to be some sort of rule set in where you'd have to be able to give fans enough warning because one of the things people hate about load management in the NBA is they come to see their favorite player and their favorite player doesn't play. So if you showed up as a Bills fan to watch Josh Allen and found out the day before, you already bought your tickets. They found out the day before that Josh Allen was going to be playing, that's bad for the game. So they would have to find a way to tackle that. But if they can find a way to tackle that successfully, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm completely cool with it.
0: You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: EB, you are up, man. You are up with Bruce. How you doing, dude?
3: Good evening, Bruce. Can you hear me okay?
2: I can hear you fantastic, man. What can I do for you?
3: Awesome. Well, I just, uh, first off, before I get to my very uh, boring take, uh, <laughs> on, on behalf of myself and Bill's Mafia everywhere, just thanks for... The content you provide, I feel like I've become a smarter football fan because of you. So, just kudos, my man.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that a lot. Thanks for being part of it. I appreciate you. Yeah, I always get, I always get good messages from you. I get, I get. You always retweet my stuff. It's just it, it, having people like you uh, who are a part of this with me is the only, <laughs> the only reason I keep wanting to do it <laughs> because it's. Uh, there are times when the weeks get busy and I don't want to do it. But then I'm like, I, I can't let E B down, man. He He's out there. He loves what this is doing, and, and having you guys be a part of this is, is such an incredible part of this journey. And without you, there's really no point. So I appreciate it. So hit me with your take, man. Let's do it.
3: Uh, okay. So I, I'm a big fan of Locked On. And Joe Marino mentioned something earlier this week. And I was like, I wonder what. And I looked up some of the stats. And so he mentioned how the 2020 roster was kind of, you know, we didn't have a lot of major injuries. And I started thinking about, well, you know, Edmonds tweaked his shoulder and a couple of small ones. But then I was thinking we kind of did get through the season without any major, quote-unquote, major injuries. And I just wanted to think, you know, ask you, like, what do you think contributes to that? Would it be like, is it literally just pure luck? Do you think our new facilities have something to do with it? Um, Conditioning is better, anything like that. So I'll uh, I'll take your answer off the air. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Okay, so the natural and obvious response
2: that everyone's going to have is that the Bills have unbelievable training facilities. Uh, When Cole Beasley came from the Cowboys, he was like, holy crap, these are great facilities, and the Cowboys have great facilities. So even he was impressed by things like that. I do think that the Bills did have a little bit of injury issue, but one of the things that they measure injury issues with is lost games. So we had people playing hurt, which is a little different because you have injury issues, but they don't show up the same way on the metrics. Players like Tremaine Edmonds, you know, Tremaine Edmonds hurt his shoulder early on and just kind of limped through it for a large part. I mentioned this on a previous podcast that I really think that our opinion of Tremaine Edmonds' play thus far in his career and just generally his opinion, our opinion on him as a whole would be different had he suffered the shoulder injury and sat out versus trying to play through it. I think that we would look at Tremaine Edmonds different. Uh, Milano got hurt, but the Bills have historically been fairly healthy in regards to missed games. And I think that that right there, that's where the facilities come into play. Because I really do think that a lot of injuries are simply luck. And what the facilities and the doctors help you do is they help you manage it more so than they help you prevent it. So I'm going to say that again. I think that one of the things the Bills facilities help them do is it helps players manage them more so than helps them prevent them. Because sometimes this stuff is just fluky. This is a contact sport. Luck is a big part of football. We don't want to talk about that, but luck is. Luck is a part of football. So when you have a shoulder injury, the thing that prevents you from having to take a, you know take an entire year off, is your ability to manage it. And that comes from the coaching staff communicating with the medical staff and the medical staff knowing when the right time is to pull the trigger and how to properly manage that injury. So I think that when it comes to games lost, the Bills have been healthy. But I think that's mostly because that the injuries they did have, if they don't require surgery, you can kind of limp along with them due to the facilities so they have had some good injury luck and when they've gotten unlucky they've been allowed and able to kind of limp through them so that's my that's my opinion on that danny you are with me what's going on man
4: yo bruce can you hear me sir (laughs) i can hear you great man i can hear you crystal clear hit me that's Man, it's an honor and a privilege, man. I just want to tell you, I'm a numbers guy, and and you just you hit me every week, and I just I love listening to you, bro. I really appreciate it, and I really just want to say that I really appreciate your integrity to your priorities. It, uh, it's a really refreshing thing to hear and see. Um,
2: well, I, I, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that a lot. This I I love this very much. Everyone knows I love what I do. I love my wife more. I love my job more. I love my dogs more. I love my and I think I think that's healthy. I think it's good. I think sometimes we get our priorities kind of screwed up a little bit in life. And if you show me someone's decisions, I'll show you their priorities because exactly. really we don't, we don't think about it very much, but decision-making is simply priorities being waged against each other. So when you say, okay. okay, I want this or this, and it's a conflict between a binary, which is higher on my list. So if you show me somebody who makes bad decisions, I'll show you somebody who's got bad priorities. So I appreciate that right. very much because it's something I, I'm trying, trying really hard to make sure that while I have this limited amount of time on this planet, I make sure I get it
4: right. So I appreciate that. Hit me, yeah, man. Totally refreshing. So here's my hit. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you think about um, a couple of things. I know I commented earlier about Harry Phillips taking over one tech prior, uh, mm. majority of of snaps potentially. Um, I think it's possible, not necessarily highly probable. But my other take that I that I wanted to talk to you about is I think that we're going to go back to a higher base package percentage than we had last year based on um, some of the things that you saw against Baltimore, right? Um, Bringing in a couple of more, bringing in linebackers more, I think it was 50% of the time, possibly. Um, I don't have a good reference. I was listening to, I think it was Jay Spence today said something about 50% of the time they ran base package against Baltimore um, instead of nickel, which was I think 90% of the time throughout the year wondering what your thoughts are on the guys we brought in Tyrell something
1: and Mark
4: yeah Tyrell Adams. I, yeah, I got messed up with Trey Adams for a second there. Um, and then there's Markel Lee, I think. If those guys would help us run a better base package than AJ Klein with Milano and Tremaine. Um, curious what you think about the one tech with Harry and about the base about the base percentage going back up. Uh, based on uh, Titans and uh, Carson Wentz being with Indianapolis.
2: All right, dude. I appreciate it. First off, with the one tech stuff. I don't think that's crazy. I really don't think it's crazy. When I first saw it in the comments section, the idea that Harrison Phillips could be pushing for starter snaps. I think that star, star is a big question mark on this team. Because, you know, year off, you don't know what they're going to look like when they come back. Um, he could be great. Um, you know, Harrison Phillips keeps talking about how being two years removed, he's 100% for the first time ever. And The last time he felt 100%, I feel like he was dipping into those snaps a little bit, which was the Cincinnati game, you know, two years ago. So I do think that there's a possibility that happens by week six, week seven, week eight. Plus, you know, the Bills need to know if they want to re-sign Harrison Phillips if they think he can be the one tech of the future thus far in his career I have not thought that Harrison Phillips is a starter caliber one tech but I don't think it's an insane take at all in regards to Bills playing more more base if Tyrell Adams plays well I absolutely think that's true one of the things you saw from the Panthers during Sean McDermott's time is you saw saw a lot more base because you had Shaq Thompson And if Matt Milano, we keep talking about trying to get a big nickel, right? What if they just use Matt Milano like Shaq Thompson? What if Tyrell Adams and Tremaine Edmonds are your base, you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes, base linebackers, and Matt Milano is your Shaq Thompson? Would that be so insane? Of course not. I think if Tyrell Adams plays well, then you're okay doing that. You just want to make sure that you're lining up the efficacy of your third linebacker with your nickel cover corner or your nickel defender, whoever that is, whether that's a safety or whatever it is. So it's, you have a decision to make. Is it going to be a third safety? Is it going to be a third corner? Is it going to be a third linebacker? Those are your options. So you take Taryn Johnson versus Matt Milano versus, uh, let's say Jaquan Johnson, or whether you look at it, Taryn Johnson versus Tyrell Adams versus Jaquan Johnson. That's how you got to look at this. And against specific schemes who run run a little bit heavier, a uh, specific schemes run a little bit heavier, like Baltimore, for example. Then I don't think that's insane. I do think it's weird that AJ Klein got a contract that is essentially two years and let's see, because I, I think Tyrell Adams is a better player than AJ Klein. So I think he can walk in right now and be a base linebacker over AJ Klein in this defense, in which case you go, why are you paying AJ Klein so much to be your fourth linebacker and special teams guy? So I I think that was an overpayment when it happened. Um, But I think it's definitely an overpayment when you get Tyrell Adams off the scrap heap, who I think is a better player than AJ Klein. So I absolutely think that there's, there's a very reasonable, very reasonable take there. I absolutely think, I think if Tyrell Adams comes in and plays well, the Bills might be comfortable playing base against anyone who's got a bigger slot receiver, someone who doesn't have, you know, they're not going to play it against the Cole Beasleys of the world, right? They're not going to play it against the Tyreek Hills of the world. You don't want Matt Milano on that. I think one of the things that showed up on Twitter not too long ago was this discussion about linebackers who can quote-unquote cover receivers in the slot. Sometimes you'll hear this leading up to the draft. You will hear things like, He's really athletic in coverage with a linebacker. He can cover wide receivers in the slot. 90% of the time, that's a lie, just so you're aware. The the most athletic linebackers in the world still get burned like bad toast against most wide receivers. The vast majority of the time, it's absolutely a lie. Now, if you have a bigger slot player or a flex tight end, like if someone you're playing, let's say you're playing against the Eagles and Zach Ertz, Right? And you really have a a big slot player. That's what Zach Ertz essentially is. If that is the case, then, yeah, you want to be able to play more base against teams like that. And if you have Tyrell Adams, you can probably feel more comfortable doing that and kicking Matt Milano out to there. But if you have a smaller slot player, then you probably don't want to do it. So I absolutely think that's logical. I I 100% think so. Uh, EB says in the comments, I think it was Griff who did a story on BR about Adams and his production when he got playing time versus Miami he looks solid. I like Tyrell Adams. So I'm completely cool with that. I think we're not really talking at all about Tyrell Adams and his effect because he's not a quote-unquote starting linebacker, but he could have an impact if he comes in and plays well. One of the takes that we got earlier from Danny was that peanut butter and fluff sandwiches is the sandwich to end all sandwiches. So, I don't know if you guys follow me on Instagram. You should. You should follow me on Instagram. Most of my Instagram is dogs and food. So just be aware. It's it's mostly a personal Instagram. It's just fun for me to interact with the fans in a relay that's very little to do with football. But I posted a picture on there. It was actually a short video of me doing a nutter sandwich where we actually did marshmallow fluff, peanut butter, and banana. And then we used a panini press to press it And kind of did that nice little pull apart where you get a cheese pull, except it was like a marshmallow fluff pull. It was, it was amazing. So I am all the way on board with this. Brian says that his food take is Texas is the best place to live in terms of food. There are no food groups better than barbecue and authentic Mexican. Okay. So I've lived all over the country. I have not lived in Texas. I, uh, I have lived in Louisville, Kentucky and Louisville, Kentucky had the best food because it. Louisville is this weird scenario where you're either the northernmost southern city or you're the southernmost northern city, depending on who you ask. And because of that, you get a lot of weird mishmashes of food. And you also were right along the river. So you had some culture that came along from being right along the river um, from hundreds of years ago. So Louisville had this awesome food scene that I really enjoyed. And we were only there for a short period of time, but I really enjoyed Louisville. So I'll I'll take your word for it that Texas is the best place for food. Uh, My wife and I love watching food shows on Food Network and Travel Channel and things like that. And there's a lot of great stuff in Texas. I will take your word for it on it because you were born and raised in Fort Worth, as you said in the comments. So take your word for it. All right. We've got some people to talk to.
5: We got Scatty. Scatty is here live with me. Dude, how you doing? Oh, fabulous, Bruce. You're making my day right now. Been listening to the pod for years. You do a fabulous job. That's awesome, man. You guys are so kind. Thank you so
2: much. You guys have been so gracious to me. What? Hit, hit me with a take, Scotty. What you got?
5: Take, take then a question. So the, okay. the take is I'm a Bills fan in Chicago, and so I've watched every single game of Mitchell Trubisky's career and it will be a uh, miracle if he's able to run an offense. I heard some takes from the Bills people early when we got Mitch that well if you know he has to come in and run the offense he could do that just fine. I have serious doubts he can run to the grocery store without messing it up. <laughs> okay. Serious doubts. And then my second one is just more of a question about the meaning of the Bills being in Chicago. Being really the only Bills fan in school in my friend group, what the Bills meant has always been a top priority for me. So I would just love your personal take on just the kind of spiritual, wider, ethereal meaning of Buffalo Bills. Thank you very much. Uh, all right, man. So
2: first off, the Mitchell Trubisky thing. I think anyone who is a Bears fan will probably tell you that. They'll probably tell you, hey, you know, this guy's a bum and I think we need to talk about backup quarterbacks as a gradient rather than a binary. I don't think it's, is Mitchell Trubisky a good quarterback? I think it's, is he better than Matt Barkley? And I would say that Mitchell Trubisky is better than Matt Barkley. And one of the things that I was pushing against last year is that you have a team who's in a Super Bowl window, who is one hamstring pull away from Matt Barkley, who the entire offense just kind of collapses with Matt Barkley in. And he doesn't give you the ability to take advantage of any of the things that Josh Allen does. So doesn't have the mobility to be able to run some of the zone read stuff if you want to do that. Doesn't have the cannon to be able to run some of the outbreaking routes. Can't perform in the scramble drill the way that Josh Allen can. So because of that, you're really pretty limited with Matt Barkley. Matt Barkley was designed to manage a game. The Bills don't have an offense where you manage the game. They don't have a strong running game that's ball control offense. He's not a fit. The Bills throw the ball a lot and ask a lot of different things of their quarterback. Mitchell Trubisky has a well-rounded skill set, if albeit not necessarily a dynamic skill set. So we're not necessarily talking about how good he is. We're talking about qualitatively what he brings to the table. So for me, I am of the opinion that... There are, you know, there are scenarios where having Mitchell Trubisky around as a backup quarterback could behoove the Bills. Even if he's not a dynamic player, he's better than Matt Barkley. And I think he was one of the better backup options available. Uh, I was pounding the table for the Bills to go after, you know, a Jameis Winston or a, you know, or Mitchell Trubisky. uh, Pounding the table for Case Keenum not too long ago uh, before he signed with the Browns. I need somebody who can come in and keep the boat afloat. Um, So I think that having him not be a dynamic talent is okay with me because he's better than Barkley and he's better than what I believe Jake Fromm to be. So the second thing in regards to the ethereal spiritual meaning for the bills, everyone has that individual story and that's the thing that makes the bills interesting to me. And the thing that makes sports fandom interesting to me, sports fandom is weird because it brings people together who otherwise have nothing in common, where your political beliefs could be different, your, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your geography. The only thing that you have to have in common with somebody in order to be friends with them in an aspect of your life is your sports fandom. That's how powerful that stuff is which is amazing to me. Now, there's downsides to that. We see people all the time who take take this way, way in a bad direction. They'll curse people out online and you know DM them threatening and horrible messages. And I've said before that you should take all of the good from sports fandom and leave all of the bad. If it turns you into somebody you don't want to be, then it's not good for you. You should get away from it. Um, you should not be a sports fan if it's going to cause you to, you know, yell obscenities at children and do some of the things that we see and act behave some of the ways that we see people behave, you shouldn't do it. It's not for you. Because at that point it's a net it's a net negative. You being a sports fan is a net negative to yourself or people around you. And that's bad. But the fact of the matter is the only reason why people behave like that is because the emotional bond is so strong. That doesn't excuse it. It's simply a reason why that happens. So Everyone has an emotional story. For me, you've heard it before. I moved all over the country my entire life. I didn't stay in any place long enough. So for me, I had a better relationship with some of the people on the Buffalo Bills message boards than I did with people I knew in real life. You know, I, I talk about Robin Mundy. I go way back with Robin, YO Bills fan. And she and I were friends on the Buffalo Bills message boards. I had a better relationship with her and some of the people that I had on Buffalo Bills message boards than my neighbors because i known them longer. So for me, a person who was uprooted a lot as a kid and all the way through my life, to this day, I move around a lot. So when that happens, some things like this make you feel like you have a home and that matters to people. And so that's not necessarily a Bills thing. That's a sports fandom thing. The thing that makes the Bills thing unique, I think, is that there's a there's a tightness to Bills fans. Because that tightness comes a rabidness. Panthers fans don't consume content the way Bills fans do. That's just the way it is. They don't consume content. So people say that Bills fans are unique. And I think that sometimes that's true. But other times, I think that sometimes our, our tight-knit group is sometimes a, a hindrance to us. We don't think about things outside our own group. We have a tendency to kind of put ourselves in an echo chamber. We don't watch other games aside from the Bills. We don't listen to other content creators aside from the Bills. That's, that's kind of my upside and downside of Bills fans and sports fandom in general. I think that it creates a great, holistic, tight-knit group, and that's a positive standpoint. But it also has a tendency to create some sort of weird clickiness. One of the rules of sociology is, in order for there to be an us, there has to be a them. So, I've dropped a couple of weird, a uh, couple of weird sound bites on this podcast, but that's one of them. In order for there to be an us, there has to be a them, and so beware people who are trying to galvanize you by villainizing others, and so one of the things you know that the enemy of my enemy is my friend right one of the ways you can galvanize people together is by giving them a common enemy and for some people it's the national media or that guy over there right and we can say well that guy over there look what he's doing to us and that has a tendency to kind of prey on that fandom to create a universe where you're galvanized over a mutual hatred of a third party and that's a sociological rule in order for there to be an us there has to be a them and that happens in politics, it happens in religion, it happens in social circles, it happens in sports fandom, it always happens. There's an attempt at de-galvanization through villainization. And so that's the downside of that emotional stuff. So that's a rambling answer for sure, but it's the best I've got. Now, we got one more and it's Andrew. Andrew, you have the last take of the day? Are you with me?
6: Hello Bruce. Andrew, can you hear me, buddy? Hey, I can hear you. Only if you awesome. can hear me. I can hear you. Okay, perfect. Um, so this this uh, little take here is a little bit of a bait. So okay, um, I like I just bait. Just want to let you know. Um, <laughs> my my thought is we we just as sports fans uh, specifically will talk through. Uh, the Bills vacuum, is we keep focusing on how exciting the new culture is uh, with the new regime, with the new front office. There's a lot of language that's changed. There's a lot of uh, growth in personnel and familial ties throughout all of One Bills Drive. And I think it's really fascinating as someone who has, you know, been on, uh, like, been in teams uh not necessarily even sports but in like my day-to-day with people that i work with been in toxic environments and know the difference between those toxic environments and those really supportive groups and collectives that i've worked with um but i don't think there's necessarily a real way to measure to equate exactly what a change of culture is so my take is that Essentially, there's no way to measure culture. Okay, so
2: first off, that's a that's a great that's a great statement. There's no way to measure culture. Um, I was thinking about this after you posted in the comments that culture is a country club, uh, not too long ago, and I was thinking about how I was going to respond to that, and something came to me. And you guys can tell me in the comments if you if you if you think that this is a a decent take, right? I think that culture is like the wind. And what I mean by that is if you're in it, you can feel it. And if you're not in it, you can't see it, but you can see the effects of it. So that's my, that's my new, that's my new take. Culture is like the wind. So I hope you guys like that. But it came to me as I was thinking about, I was kind of mulling it around in my subconscious as I was doing the remainder of this takes. I think culture is like the wind. If you're outside and the wind starts blowing, you feel it, you know, it's there. You can't see it, but you feel it. And then if you're inside your house, you can't feel the wind anymore because you're not part of it. You're not part of that environment, but you can see its effect on things. You can see the way it affects the trees around you, your fence rocking back and forth. You can see the way it affects the grass and everything outside that you look at your hammock. If it's still attached, you can see it blow away things. that's not meant to blow away. You can see it blow over your trash cans, but that's the way that I think that culture can be best described. And I think that's true. I think we've all been part of a culture that we could feel. You have been in a, uh, a workspace with a bad culture before. I, I almost guarantee it that you've been in a workplace with a bad culture. Hopefully, you've been in a workplace with a good culture at some point. I think we have pretty good culture where I work. But you can feel it if you're in it. But if you look at a culture and you constantly see people trying to run away from it, then that's probably you're probably seeing the effects of the culture. In this case, you're seeing people constantly talk about it. And so we can't define it, but we can see the manifestations of it. So that's my, that's my culture take. I hope that it's something that holds up to the test of time. I hope I don't immediately come up with something later on tonight. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was an idiotic statement. Bruce, what are you thinking? That was so dumb. I'll be in the shower because when I'm done with this, I go work out. And then I get a shower. And so I'll be in the shower later on tonight. And I'll be like, because that's where all your best thoughts come, obviously, in the shower, right? We all know that. I'll be like, you really thought that was clever for a brief second, didn't you, Bruce? <laughs> you thought that was clever, and it turns out it was stupid. So hopefully that doesn't happen to me. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being a part of this. I, I This was one of the best live shows we've ever done. It's because of you guys. Because you guys brought the takes, and we're probably going to keep doing it. We're probably going to keep doing takes at some point. Um, we'll do it a different way maybe. Maybe we'll do it on YouTube eventually. I'm not sure. But the Bills Mafia who listens to the Bruce Exclusive are awesome. And I want to make sure that I'm talking about what you guys want to talk about and giving you guys a, a chance to shine and making sure that, you know, my name may be in the title of the podcast, but this is about all of us. You know, it's about me, but it's also about you guys. So thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.